Thank you. No, no that was good. We, we've, it's good. Thank you for praying, both of you. And uh, yeah, so if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 25, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll have the verses up on the screen. If you need a Bible, please stop on your way out and grab a copy of the scriptures that we have uh, for you. Today we are putting a bow on our series called Kingdom Stories. This is the first series of the year. Next week, we're going to introduce uh, the next series for, uh, for 2024. Uh, but today, we are landing the plane for this series. And if you haven't been with us, if you're new, um, it's a series that is based on parables that Jesus taught. All of them actually have been out of Matthew's gospel where he uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And one of the things that we've learned about the kingdom of heaven, when we think about it, we've said that wherever Jesus rules, there is the kingdom. There is the kingdom. And we understand that there's a sense that the kingdom is already here. So whenever we allow Christ to rule in our lives, there is the kingdom as we pray and seek the lost so that Christ begins to rule in their life, there would be the kingdom. Anytime somebody allows Christ to be king in their heart, the kingdom grows, it expands. And we also recognize that one day, the kingdom will be here fully, completely, that Jesus literally will be the king of all things. And so today, Matthew chapter 25 is where we're gonna be. It actually contains three parables that until this week, I never really thought about the connection between the three, how they kind of all feed into each other. And so I'm going to draw those connections for us today. But we're going to focus mostly on the third parable uh, in Matthew chapter 25. It's a parable of the sheep and the goats. And so, yes, today you're going to have to think about yourself as an animal. It's, it's, it's just the way it is. All right, you're going to have to make a decision, which, which am I, right? But, but as we unpack this parable or these parables, um, they all share a kind of a similar point. Jesus, in Matthew 25, is telling these parables just before he's arrested. And that whole, uh, the last week of his life begins to kind of unfold, right? He's, he's uh, about to be arrested, put on trial. He's about to die, get buried, rise again, and then go back to heaven, right? Where his disciples would see him no more. But through these three parables, what Jesus is doing is he's encouraging them to be ready for the day when he would return. The day when he would return. This time, not as a, as a baby in a manger or a lamb who would be slain for the sins of the world, but as the judge of all the earth. The point of these three parables is that those who heard him 2,000 years ago, and those who are reading his words today, so them and us, the, the point that he's making in all three parables is that we need to be ready. We need to be ready, we ought to be ready for that day when he, return, he returns. Each of these three parables build on each other. Let me just quickly summarize them for you. I won't teach through all of them. <clears throat> but the first parable 
is about 10 virgins who are supposed to be part of a big marriage party, but they don't know when the party starts and when they're going to get picked up to go to the marriage party. And Jesus in this parable describes five of those virgins as being wise. Jesus says that they were the ones who you know, had everything ready. They had their bags packed, their, their overnight gear ready to go. And specifically in the story, he talks about having their lamps filled with oil so that whenever the bridegroom shows up, they would be ready to go. And, and then on the flip side, in this parable five of the virgins, Jesus describes as foolish. And, and they're not ready. As a matter of fact, day after day after day, they begin to think, you know what? He's probably not coming tonight. So no need to go out and get our oil ready. There's no need to be prepared. As a matter of fact, tonight seems like a great night to just watch Netflix and eat pizza. And in the story, sure enough, the night comes, the bridegroom shows up, and the bridegroom takes the ones who were packed and ready, had their lamps trimmed with oil, ready to go, and he leaves those who weren't. And so that parable's point is basically this, that Jesus wants us to be ready when he comes around and not be sitting idly by. He doesn't want us to sit around idle. That's the point of that parable. But then the question is, what, what, does, that, what does that look like to not be idle well, that's where he gets into the second parable. The second parable is a very familiar parable, right? It's the parable of the talents. We've taught it multiple times at Zion, and we've taught it even re fairly recently here at Zion, so I'm not going to reteach the parable. But it's the story of a master who goes on a trip, and he leaves various amounts of money with three of his servants. To one servant, and you know the story, most of you, right? To one, he gives five talents. To another, he gives two talents and to another he gives one. And the story goes that those first two, the one with the five talents and the, the one with the, uh, the two talents, he goes out and invests the money and they get a return. But the third servant ends up being scared that he might lose it in the market. So he just takes the talent and buries it and waits for the master to get back. And when the master comes back, the first two are rewarded for the investment that they made with the talents that they were given. They multiplied those talents, but the one who buried the talent is called wicked. It's called wicked. So again, we can build off that first one and ask the question, well, what does it look like to be ready for Jesus' return? Well, it looks like being busy, leveraging whatever God has given you for his kingdom. That's what it looks like in your notes. Write that down. What does it look like to be ready for Jesus' return? It looks like being busy leveraging whatever God has given you for his kingdom. He's given all of us a certain amount of time and talents and treasures, right? The three T's to use for his kingdom. And he's going to hold us accountable, responsible for what we actually do. But we still then might be asking the question, what does it look like in action? What does using and investing my talents 
mean? What does that actually look like? What does it actually look like to invest your talents in the kingdom? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because that's why Jesus tells the third parable that we're going to focus the rest of our time on. It's in this parable that Jesus gets to the heart of what it means to be a follower. Before I read the parable and we begin to unpack it, let me, let me ask you, how, how do you define the core of being a Christian? Like, if somebody asks you, what is the core of, of being a Christian, how would you respond to that? What determines whether you are one or you aren't one? See, for, for many, if you ask them, it seems as though they would say that being a Christian is mainly about what we believe, right? It's, it's mainly about what we believe. And others would say it's mainly about not doing the wrong things, right? It's one of those two. Nothing more. It's, a, it's about what we believe, and it's about all the things that we, we say no to. That's what it means to be a Christian. But is that really the case? See, this third parable, I think, helps us see the heart of Jesus. It begins to tease out how I think Jesus would explain what it means to be a Christian. These three parables all kind of build, and this third parable in my mind, at least as I, as I thought about it this week, it becomes kind of the crescendo of the other two parables. And it shows us what it looks like to live with your lamp trimmed and your bags packed, right? And it shows us what it looks like to invest your talents in a way that pleases the master, which is something I hope we all want to do in our faith journey. So Matthew 25, I'm going to start reading in verse number 31. I think I said 41 back there, but I'm starting in verse 31. And Jesus says this. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Again, we're talking, he's, this is clear, this is a, a future moment. He says, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There's the imagery of sheep and goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. That is not a political statement. All right, so you just got to get that out of your head. Nothing political about that. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous, they're a little confused. They, they, they say to the king, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? I, we just were living our lives doing the things that we thought we were supposed to do, what were normal and natural for us because we love the king. The king will answer them, truly, I say to you, 
as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers. You did it to me. So in this part of the parable, who, who are we talking about? Who is, it, is Jesus talking about? And he uses in this part of the story this phrase, the least of these. Least of these is status language. And it's with good reason that Jesus uses this kind of status language, especially as you put this story against the backdrop of the culture of that day, which was, again, highly status conscience, the Greco-Roman world of the first century. And those who were often viewed with contempt by society were those who Jesus told his followers that he noticed them caring for and valuing. You see, I don't think we, we can read that text and understand completely how, how, um, how much the, the social status mattered in that day. Like when we read that, we read and we have in our mind hungry and thirsty and stranger and naked and sick and prisoner. We, we have those images in our mind, but what we can't possibly connect is the emotion that, they, that the hearers would have, would have felt when, when they were commended by Jesus for caring about those who, culturally speaking, were viewed as less than, as unimportant, as outcasts, rejects, um, those who needed to be avoided. Again, we, we, we can't completely understand how, how much differentiation there was at that time between, again, even you know, middle class and the poor. We, we, we can't understand the fact that when, when somebody was sick, in Jesus' day, in that culture, the immediate conclusion was, what did they do wrong? The, the reason why they're sick is because they've sinned and God's punishing them, right? We, we have no idea completely what this was trying to convey, okay? But let's, we're going to try to lean into this. And, and so I, I, need to, I need to unpack this. When, when we read this, this phrase, inasmuch as you did this to the least of these, my brothers, some, and I was actually surprised by how many people share this view of this text, because Jesus uses the phrase, the least of these, my brother, some interpret this as meaning we're only supposed to care for hungry, thirsty, sick, poor, and imprisoned believers. But to me, that's a huge cop-out. I don't think you can look at the totality of Jesus' ministry when he talks about why he came. He said that he came to set the prisoner free. That he came, his very mission was to minister to and reach out to those who were outcasts and reject. Those who were thought of it to be less than and who were often left behind when it came to all things culture related. Again, it's interesting that as I studied, some people saw this as being very myopic. But I don't think when you look at Jesus' ministry, when you look at his model, what he modeled in life, who he spent time with, how he ministered to people who would fit into, that, into these categories, right? And, and ultimately his mission 
to, to seek and to save the lost, that we could conclude that Jesus only wants us to care about suffering believers. I just, I don't, I don't accept that. I think when you look at Jesus' life, he shows surprising solidarity with and compassion for the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, those who are naked, sick, and in prison. Which then begs the question, if Jesus is our model, how are we doing? How are we doing? Because the kingdom of heaven is prepared for those who minister to the outcasts, to the rejects, to the those without power to those who are helpless. We'll talk more about that in a minute because I know when I say that, that might make some of you all a little bit uncomfortable and I promise we're going to double back to that. That uneasiness that some of you might be feeling right now. But let's continue to read because Jesus has some hard words for those who are on the left. Not politically, just in the story. Listen to what he says. Starting in verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that's a pretty powerful parable. That's a pretty cutting parable. And I think what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to answer a couple of questions that this parable no doubt raises. All right? That's what we want to do. Well, what are some of the questions that this parable raises? Let's go ahead and put it on the table. Let's address it. Let's answer it. And let's see what God is up to in our lives personally. The first question that has to come to your mind when you read this parable is, um, who's going to go to heaven? Like, who is actually going to get eternal life? Who is the kingdom of heaven actually prepared for? See, this parable is alarming on many fronts, but one of the reasons why it's so alarming is because it shows us that everyone who considers themselves a Christian doesn't go to heaven. See, think about it. The sheep and the goats in this parable all seem to recognize the king. The sheep and the goats all stand before the king, They don't question his existence or even deny his authority. They stand before him and they see him for who he is. And you'd like to think that they probably considered themselves the same in his eyes, not different from each other. If we go back to the first parable, the parable of the ten virgins, all of the virgins considered themselves to be friends of the bridegroom. In the second parable, all three servants consider themselves to be employees of the master. See, these three parables, when you put them together, aren't parables that that we can read to help us separate Christians from the rest of the world. I don't think that's the way you want to frame these parables. I think a better way for us to frame these parables is they help us to separate genuine Christians from imposters. Read those parables that way. 
They help us to, to see clearly that there is no middle ground. You either are or you aren't. And make no mistake about it, as we unpack some of these verses, we're talking about eternal separation and all that that implies. Again, Jesus ends the parable of the, the virgins by saying, Matthew 25, 10 through 12, be up on the screen. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, let us in. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Again, that's, that's language that we understand to be separation language. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And then he ends the account of the three servants by saying in Matthew 25, uh, look down at verse 30, he says, he says to cast the worthless servants into the, outer, into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, we see that separation, that final you know, judgment language. And then to the goats in the parable, this last one we just read, verse number 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't think, maybe I could be wrong, but I don't think it can get any clearer. They were talking about heaven and hell. And there are a lot of people in church who think that they're Christians, but one day they will realize they were tragically and eternally mistaken. We need to read those parables with that, that posture. Again, here's some of the questions. So what is the difference? What is the difference between those who go to heaven and hell? Let's, let's think about this for a minute. See, it had little to do with what they believed. We're talking now about the, the sheep and the goats. It had little to do with what they believed on the surface the only difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did or did not do. Whether or not they were actively engaged in the mission of God, right? And in, and in the parable, that included, it's not limited to, but it definitely included caring about the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and the prisoner. Which then begs the big question, and I know some of you have thought it, so let's go ahead and put it on the table, and it's this, doesn't the Bible teach that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone? I mean, Trent, if I'm reading this correctly, if I'm understanding what Jesus is saying correctly, should that lead us to conclude that it's our good works, it's the, the good things that we do that get us in, and if we don't do these good things, we're out? I mean, I thought that the Bible taught that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone? And the answer to that question is, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So then it asks, then we have to ask the question, well, isn't saying that salvation is determined by how we respond to the least of these, as Jesus describes them, isn't that a contradiction? And to that I would say, No. It's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. And here's why. What this parable shows us is that real faith, the kind of faith that saves us, is more than just intellectual assent. It's not just having the right set of beliefs. 
The the kind of faith that genuinely saves a person, that opens the kingdom of heaven up to them, that provides for them that eternal life that we all want, that reconciles us back to our heavenly father and provides for us an eternity with him. That kind of faith that transforms us on the inside is always demonstrated, validated, by our actions. That's why James said, faith without works is dead when it's by itself. See, the sign of genuine saving faith is a passionate commitment, and I'll say it this way, to love in action. It's a passionate commitment to love in action. There are two ways to tell what a person believes. One is with what your mouth says. But another way to tell what a person believes is what their life says. And uh, one of them never lies. Guess which one? You got it? The second one. Our life doesn't lie. Sometimes our mouth lies. Sometimes our mouth lies to ourselves. But our life doesn't lie. So the question is not what does your mouth say, but what does your life say? I have not thought about this parable as deeply as I have this week, read and studied and tried to put some some thoughts around it. But let's think for a minute about the imagery. The imagery of a sheep and the imagery of a goat. We know that a sheep is different from a goat, right? And the difference between them is not only their outward characteristics. So I can, again, show you a picture of a sheep and show you a picture of goat and of a goat, and outwardly they definitely look different. It's deeper than that. Sheep and goat have different DNA. Not just the outward characteristics, they're different at the very core of their being. They are different species. Yes, we can tell them apart based on their outward differences, right? Goats, you know, are, you know they've got hair, nasty hair. Sheep have, have wool. You know, sheep are way more compliant or tend to be more compliant. Goats can be a little bit more tricky to, to navigate and work with, right? But we must not be but we must be careful to not confuse fruit with root. We must not confuse the presence of wool with DNA. And here's what I mean by that. If I wanted to, I could get a goat, right? And I can shave the wool off the back body of a sheep, and I can glue that wool onto a goat. Is that goat a sheep? No, it's not. It's a sheep, or it's a goat, that has sheep's wool attached to it. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. The, the New Testament, as we read other places in the New Testament, and we're trying to address the issue, like, is, this a con- is, is Jesus contradicting the rest of the New Testament? Is there something here that, that's, that's amiss? No, 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 no. See, the New Testament is clear. The way that we, the way that we love others has, has a, a, an eternal significance. It matters. But we cannot mistake this reality, that the righteous will be separated from the unrighteous based on the presence of real love. But, and here's the point, this love, this love is not the cause 
of a righteous new nature. The love doesn't cause us to have a righteous new nature. It is the, the inevitable byproduct of receiving a new nature, of having been given a new heart. Put another way, sacrificial love is the real wool that distinguishes the sheep from the goats. We'll put it on the screen. Having real wool does not make you a sheep. Having real wool does not make you a sheep. I can attach wool to a goat. doesn't make it a sheep. But being a sheep causes you to have real wool. Do you see the difference there? There's a difference. One has to do with our very nature. And when Christ saves us, when we genuinely put our faith in Christ, he transforms us on the inside, which then produces fruit on the outside. And so in this story, when Christ separates the sheep and the goat, he's separating them based on the presence of, and we can just say it this way, inevitable outcomes. Inevitable outcomes. Yes, we can recognize true conversion by the presence of sacrificial love, but we must never believe that our sacrificial love causes true conversion. Caring for the sick and the poor and the hurting and the naked and the prisoner is a great thing, but we can't attach that to the, the, the cause for us becoming believers, being believers. It's just the fruit. Sacrificial love comes from new birth like real wool comes from being a sheep. That makes sense? Good, I hope that clears that up because when you read it, it could be confusing and, and have a tendency to go, wait a second, is Jesus saying that, that if I don't do these good things, I'm, I'm, I can't be a believer? And then now every time you'd pass somebody, you know, Walmart or, you know, you're calling up Clarion County, you know, jail saying, hey, I need to come see some prisoners because I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a goat. I want to be a sheep, right? And all of a sudden, we're, we're trying to earn our way in. Again, that's not, that's not the point that Jesus is making here. And we need to understand that. Okay, but there's another question that we need to address. And this is a hard one. As a matter of fact, this one's harder than the first one, but I'm gonna address it. And, and that's this question that, that comes to my mind when we read this parable. It's this. Is it possible to be a casual Christian? Let me use some other words. Is it possible to be a nominal Christian? Is it possible to be a, and this, this might sound a like a political word, we use this word in politics, and I might come back to this in a minute, a moderate Christian. When I, see, when I use the word moderate, right, politically speaking, we, that feels mushy to some. Oh, he's just a moderate. He doesn't have any convictions, right? Is it possible to be a moderate and in the middle Christian? Is, is it possible to be a cultural Christian? The Bible uses the term lukewarm. Is it possible to be a lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm? Is that even a possibility? And, and what does that look like? Well, this is, and again, for the lack of a better description, this would kind of describe the Christian who sits in churches, just like ours, across the country, across the world, in our day and for the last 2,000 years. They believe the message, they're not in agreement, yeah, 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 yeah. But there's something about them that just isn't all in. 
They're not sold out to Jesus. They're not actually producing fruit that's in line with the reality that their life has been changed from the inside out. There's no real meaningful engagement in following him or his mission. Honestly, it's these kinds of Christians or these kinds of Christians, I'll use the with parentheses, right? It's these kind of people that Jesus is describing in each of the three parables. Let's go back to it again. The virgins consider themselves friends of the bridegroom, but they're not living in a way that anticipates the bridegroom showing up. They only think about how to make themselves comfortable in the present, not how, to be a fate, not how to be faithful to their assignment, keep their lamps trimmed and the, and the oil filled, right? The, the wicked servant considers himself an employee of the master, but he's never offered. He's never said, I need to take what the master has given me and use it for the sake of the king, my master, and his wishes. Again, read the parables. You will not find middle ground. You will not find casual Nominal, moderate, lukewarm. It's not a category. Politically speaking, okay, we, we live in a world where everything is hard right, hard left, and from a political viewpoint, we've seen what that has gotten us. It's gotten us nowhere, right? But spiritually speaking, we need to think more clearly in those terms. I, I, I'm, I'm either all in or I'm not. That's, that's the decision, you're either committed to the mission, all in for Jesus, using your resources for his kingdom, or not. You are either, and again, I told you, this is not easy. You're either, to the third parable, you're either a sheep or a goat. And by goat, I don't mean Tom Brady or LeBron James. We're not talking about the good kind of goat, greatest of all time, Right? You're either one or the other. And here's what that does. And I love all of you. I, I, I'm, we're friends. And it's because I love you and it's because I'm a friend that we need to, time to time, bring this to the surface, kind of just tease this out a little bit, right? This puts casual, nominal, moderate, lukewarm Christians in a very tough place because it's not a category in scriptures. There's not, there's not a category for it. The, the, the scriptures know nothing of a, eh, I'll fit him in when I can mentality. Several years ago, uh, Francis Chan, a pastor, author, speaker, um, wrote a book called Crazy Love. How many of you ever read his book, Crazy Love? A lot, a lot of folks uh, back in the day read, read Crazy Love. And, and at, the, at the time, it was a radical book because he really went at that middle group that really doesn't exist biblically. And, and in the book, he, he describes lukewarm. And he uses the word lukewarm because Jesus uses the word lukewarm in, in the book of Revelation. And he, he said, I'd rather you be hot or cold because you're lukewarm. I'm just going to spit you out of my mouth. And we're not going to get into all the implications of, of, of what that means. But, but the imagery is what I want you to focus on. But here's, here's something that he said in his book. And we're just going to put it up, this quote from, from Francis up on the, on the screen. This, this describes, he's, he's trying to describe 
what lukewarm looks like. He says, lukewarm people want to be saved from their sins, or excuse me, don't want to be saved from their sin, just the penalty of their sin. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, but don't do radical things themselves. Lukewarm people equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness. Well, I don't do this, that, or the other. I'm good. That makes me holy. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, coworkers, or friends. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more often than eternity in heaven. Lukewarm people love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in a truly sacrificial way. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. That's a big one for, for us today. Lukewarm people give God the leftovers, not their first and best. That's... Yikes, that's convicting. And it should be convicting for all of us. And, and I, I don't say that because I'm trying to convince everybody in this room, you're not a Christian. I grew up in that environment, okay? Just again, word about me, like you guys know my story. Like I grew up in a church environment where about once a year an evangelist would come to the church, yell and scream and convince everybody, you're not even a Christian, just so that more people would come forward at the end of the service so that you can count more heads and go, well, listen, we had 25 people get saved and unfortunately, you know, 22 of them, it was for the 17th time. Because every year they just get guilted into not thinking that they're really believers. I'm not doing that. I hate that mentality and I hope you don't sense that in me. But every once in a while, we need to do what the, the Apostle Paul said. To work out our salvation with fear, and trembling, with fear and trembling. Every once in a while, we need to make our, our calling and election sure. To make sure that I'm not in this category that, biblically speaking, really doesn't exist. Lukewarm is not a category that you ever want to be caught in. All right? So, on the flip side of that, I want to I I just kind of round this thing out a little bit. We all will have seasons where we struggle, where we would, again, the best way to describe ourselves is lukewarm. That, that might just be the only thing that we have to describe ourselves. Like, I don't hate Jesus, but man, things are not going well right now. We, we, we go through seasons where, man, it just feels like there's a striving to maintain any kind of relationship with God, to maintain any kind of a commitment. Is that coming out there, Dave, or just up here? You hearing that up here? All right. Not sure what that is. I'm not sure if that's me. I mean, okay, all right. So we, we all, listen, we all have seasons where we struggle. I got my hand in the air. I, I do as well, right? Apathy sets in, a carelessness sets in, an indifference sets in, all right? I get that. But the fundamental question still comes back to, to, to these kinds of things. Like when you became a Christian, did anybody explain to you that being a Christian is really about surrender about fully engaging in the mission of God? Often it's not. Often we are introduced to Christ and Christianity simply as our ticket to heaven and our escape from hell. That's the best gospel we're ever told. That's not the gospel of Jesus, right? Was your Christianity, again, was it just this belief thing? 
that, hey, being a Christian is about having this statement of faith. And if you're just like, yep, 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 I believe all these things, you're good. Like that's, again, that's not it. That's not the gospel. So again, let's wrestle with these parables. Are you living as though he's coming back today? If so, you're a wise virgin from the story. If not, you're foolish. Are, are you personally engaged in the mission of God? Somehow, someway, can you, can you trace your life to say, I'm offering my time and my talent and my, and my resources to God? And again, there are seasons. There, there are moments in our life. It looks differently in different seasons. But at some point, we have to be able to recognize that as a steward in his kingdom, he's given me something to steward. How am I stewarding what he's given to me? Again, occasionally, we just have to wrestle with that, ask ourselves that question. Have I given God a blank check to my life, right? See, these questions that I've asked ultimately lead us to the most important question because one day we are going to stand before the king and that day he's going to separate the sheep for the goats. And so the question is very simply, which category are you in? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Are you a sheep or are you a goat? Again, we've already said this. There are two ways for us to tell what you believe, what your mouth says and what your life says. And one of them is reliable and the other one, not so much. So take some time today. Take some time this week and consider your life. And again, let's just use Jesus' examples here. Are you at some level engaged and doing something, to thinking about, to, to, sending, to, 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 to serving, to caring about, to being compassionate toward, at any level, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are poor, naked, or a prisoner. Again, this, that's not an exclusive list. We, we can, we can, I think we can fairly and accurately expand on that list. We can talk about the orphans those who are fatherless or those who are motherless. We, we, we can talk about uh, those who you know, have, have experienced uh, other kinds of traumas and tragedies and other kinds of setbacks in their life. This is not a, a, a litmus test that if I can't check the box for each of these categories, that I'm not a Christian. This, this has to do, and again, I, I, maybe this is not, a, this, this has to do with the posture of our heart. Are we bent in that direction? Does our heart lean in that direction? And if it does, recognize that that in and of itself is not what makes you a believer. You can just be sticking some wool on a goat's body, right? But if you are a sheep, you're going to produce the wool. You're going to produce these kind of works. Again, let's go back. And I'm going to worship him to come back up. Uh, this is not, and if you heard anything that makes you think that I somehow believe, embrace, teach, we believe, embrace, teach, that our salvation is dependent upon our works, then go back and please re-listen to it because that is not this message at all. Salvation is only in the finished work of Christ. Christ alone saves us, full stop. But if we've been saved by Christ then that faith won't be alone. It's going to produce something in our life. And that's really the focus. 
As if you take some time to look at your life and kind of, what, what am I producing? What is my life producing? And if you come to the conclusion that I can't see any fruit, then it's okay for you to go back to the root and say, have I truly believed? Am I living in a way that, that recognizes that he's king, that I, I'm supposed to be ready? He's the, he's the bridegroom, I'm the virgin. I wanna make sure that I'm living as though I'm ready for him to return. He's the master, I'm the steward, and I wanna invest what he's given to me, right? Because one day I will stand before him, and I don't wanna be the ones that are cast aside. I wanna be the ones for whom Jesus says, welcome, eternal life, the kingdom was prepared for you. That's something you have to wrestle with. I can't wrestle that for you. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. And God, I do pray for those who maybe need to wrestle with whether or not they're truly believers, whether or not they've truly repented of their sins and placed their hope in you, Christ. They just need to wrestle with it. God, I, I pray that, that that wrestling would lead them to a place of confidence one way or another. God, give them confidence that yes, they are believers that maybe just are in a season where man, they're just not leaning in the way they should. Um, and, and may that bring conviction and repentance and, and a full engagement with you. But then, again, some might need to come to the conclusion, I've really never truly believed. And, and God, again, we, we thank you for, for that conclusion if it leads them to repentance and belief in the gospel. So God, use this time to move our hearts, to change us, to challenge us, to make us you know, more of who you want us to be. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, and again, as we always do, however God's shaping you, um, respond accordingly, whatever he's saying. Um, just be obedient, all right? Let's respond.